You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hydepark.church. chapter 2. By grace, I have been redeemed. By grace, I have been restored. I'm no longer the person that I once was. Um, And that's not because of my calling. It's not because of my goodness. It's not because of my good deeds. It's not because I'm the member of a church. It's not because I'm a pastor. It's because of the good, good grace of my Father and nothing else. Acts chapter 2. So I want to I start off by talking about a couple of churches that, well, you, you're probably not aware of. Um, I, I came to know these churches through uh, the North Carolina Baptist Convention. I was up there. I'm on the board of directors for the convention. and got to hear about the story of these two churches. And so I wanted to share the story with you this morning. The first one is, is Shamrock, uh, Shamrock Drive Baptist Church. This is in Charlotte. And this particular church is located, if you're familiar with Charlotte, it's, it's, it's located in the Shannon Park area. The Shannon Park area is northeast of, of the downtown of Charlotte. And Shannon Park is a, is a densely populated area. It's kind of like a suburb of the city where there are thousands and thousands and thousands of homes. Uh, Charlotte is uh, predicted to be one of the fastest growing cities, not only in our state, but also in the country. I think it's in the top eight, top five uh, of fastest growing areas. Uh, This particular area, Shannon Park, uh, I think the median age is about 35. Young families, as far as the eye can see, schools on top of schools on top of schools. And Shannon, Shamrock Drive Baptist Church, is sitting right in the middle of this metropolis of thousands and thousands and thousands of people. They have a tremendous opportunity to reach a lot of people. Not only uh, does Shamrock Drive Baptist Church have a a sanctuary and a a very large building, it doesn't even really look like a church from this particular perspective. It's on the other side, it's kind of where you see the the worship center and all that, but it's it's a huge facility. It's got a gymnasium and a full school that runs from preschool all the way to, to high school. And they are situated on one of the most visible lots in the Shannon Park area. So not only does this church have great visibility and great facilities, but they are sitting in one of the greatest areas of Charlotte to be able to reach thousands and thousands of people. I'll introduce you to another church. This one is 16th Street Church or 16th Street Baptist Church in Greensboro. Very similar situation. I I couldn't find a color picture for this one, but this is only what you're seeing here is only about 50% of the campus. On the back side is a whole nother big building. They got the Family Life Center just like us and a large campus, large parking. And again, they are sitting in one of the highest growth areas of Greensboro. And Greensboro is predicted to grow even faster than the Charlotte area, the Shannon Park area. Uh, 20% growth over the next five years in Greensboro, Kernersville, Winston-Salem area. Uh, a lot of tech jobs are available. The uh, economy is booming. And where this church sits, Again, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of homes, and they have a tremendous opportunity to reach a lot of people. Both of these churches are 
about 100 years old. Both of these churches have been through a lot of transformation over the years. Uh, both of these churches pretty much re reached their peak right around the early 80s. And then after that, something began to happen in both of these churches. I don't know their whole story, uh, just based on what I can find and, and the statistics that I found, but right around in the 80s, things begin to change and they begin to decline. And, and it's almost like they got to their, their best days in the last of the 70s and early 80s. They plateaued and they begin to decline. And then over a series of years, uh, the churches continued to decline. Now, it was not because they didn't have a big campus. It was not because they didn't have a lot of programs because both of these churches had lots of ministry programs from everything that I can tell from research. They were doing all of the things that a lot of churches are doing and are still doing to this day, but yet they were not reaching a community that was growing at an incredible fast pace. It was growing so fast for in Greensboro, this church used to be out kind of to itself, but the sprawl of Greensboro, the city came to them and the suburbs came to them and, and their property all around this church are developments. You can stand in this parking lot and you can look around and there are developments all around this particular church where there is house after house after house after house. If you go down those neighborhoods, you will find playgrounds, you'll find schools, kids everywhere. And not only that, but people from all over the world are both in Greensboro and Charlotte. Very, very diverse. I want to, I want to show you a video of, of what's happening now at Shamrock Drive Baptist Church. I want, you to, I want you to see this video. You know what those kids are doing? They're reciting the Quran. You see, Shamrock Drive Baptist Church they not only plateaued, but they began to decline at such a rate that they couldn't pay their bills anymore. They couldn't keep the power on. And a developer looked and saw that the property that Shamrock Drive Baptist Church was sitting on was a very prized piece of property in the Charlotte area. So they, they knew, the realtor knew that the church was in bad shape and there was no way they could keep the building up. They couldn't even mow their grass. They couldn't pay their power bill. And there was only a few people left in this humongous building. So a realtor approaches them and says, can I buy the property? And of course, they sold the property to a realtor. The realtor turns right around and he's getting ready to bulldoze the place. And he's approached by IntelliCorps Academy, International Academy an Islamic school, and they bought the property from the realtor. They took all the crosses out, took all the pews out, took all the Bibles out, painted over all the Bible verses, and now sitting on Shamrock Drive is IntelliCorps International Academy, an Islamic private school for preschool through 12th grade where kids are taught the Quran. What you just heard in that video where kids quoting a specific part of the Quran where it says that Allah is one and only Allah is God. Where the gospel used to be proclaimed, the gospel is now silent. And all that is left in that building is the teachings of Muhammad. Well, what about 16th Street Baptist Church in Greensboro? Check this video out. 16th Street Baptist Church is now an Islamic center. They're having hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people come to multiple services on a weekend 
to hear the Quran proclaimed that Muhammad is prophet and he is the only prophet, a place where the gospel was proclaimed, a place where worship of the one true God was offered up week after week, where there were children's ministries and people being baptized and marriages and weddings and funerals and everything that that a church is involved in was happening in both of these buildings only now to have a false doctrine of a false prophet being proclaimed and leading people to hell. Now, there's a reason that I wanted to show you this. And the reason that I wanted to show you this is for all of us to understand that if the church of Jesus Christ is not focused intently on what we are called to do and who we are called to be, there is no guarantees that 20 years from now there won't be an Islamic center right here on this property. I know that seems a little harsh. I know that was hard to see. And I know your brain's running a mile a minute just like my, mine was when I said at the convention and heard this. 4,600 Southern Baptist churches are expected to close over the next five years. That's 18 churches a week. 18 churches across the Southern Baptist Convention are expected to close. We're not planning churches and replenishing churches fast enough to fill the void of the 4,600 that are going to close their doors. How does this happen? I'm a mixture of mad and sad and broken over what I just saw. I don't know about you, but it breaks my heart to know that in these two beautiful campuses, planted in places where there are thousands of people who don't know Jesus, the only thing coming out of these buildings now is false teaching and false doctrine. I don't know if you noticed at the end of that video, did you see all these people? How does this happen? Well, it's when churches become something they were never commanded to be. When we get distracted on lesser things, and we do that long enough, this could be the result. We've got churches right here in our community, right here in Robinson County, that have not baptized a single person in five years. We have churches in this city, right inside Lumberton, that this morning has a building that will seat 200, and there are 12. And, and, and I, I know this church particularly on the inside, they have no concern for reaching anyone in their community at all. They have a bank account full of money, and they're just paying the bills. So Jesus comes back or until they close their doors. When you strip away everything, when you strip away everything that the, the modern church is doing, and you get down to the core elements of a New Testament church, what are those things? What are the things that a church absolutely must be? In other words, if you reduce everything down to the very bare minimum what is the absolute bare necessities of what a New Testament church is supposed to be? In other words, you can't be less than these things and still be a New Testament church. Well, fortunately, we find that right here in Acts chapter 2. We find in Acts chapter 2, verses 41 and following, the basics of what a New Testament church must be. And if it's anything less than these eight things that I'm getting ready to share with you that I find right here in this text, if we go anywhere less than these eight things, 
then you cease being a New Testament church. Now, a church can be many, many more things than these eight things. Uh, a church can do many more things than these eight things, and, and those other things may not be bad necessarily. You're not going to see children's ministry. You're not going to see student ministry. You're not going to see a worship band. You're not going to see any of that in, in this text. And those things are not necessarily bad. But if all those things go away tomorrow, if all the padded chairs go away tomorrow, I know some of you aren't sitting in padded chairs. I got that. And all the buildings go away tomorrow. And all the programs go away tomorrow. If none of that is necessarily the core of what a church is, then what is a church? And if we don't know that, if we don't know what that is, if we don't know what we're supposed to be, if we've got an identity crisis, then our future could turn out just like what we saw on the video. I don't know if you noticed this, but in the sanctuary part of those two buildings where the children were at and where the men were praying, do you know that's where the pews were sitting? Do you know that's where people were hearing the gospel being proclaimed and all the building has been taken out and all that's been left now is the the prayer rugs where they bow and pray to a false god. Let's take a look at what Luke is going to tell us. That a church cannot be less than these things and still be a church. Let's pick it up in verse, I want to back up in verse 38 for context. And Peter said to them, now remember Peter has preached this sermon. It took him about 10 minutes to preach it. And he says, repent and be baptized every one of you. The reason Peter responds is because the people were pierced to their heart. And they said, what should we do? And Peter says, repent, be baptized. Seek the forgiveness of your sins. Receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Verse 41, So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 people. I don't know how many people were in the street, but I know it was more than 3,000. I was guesstimating last week about 5,000 people packed into these streets, hearing Peter proclaim the message that says that Joel's prophecy is now coming partially true, that the Holy Spirit has been poured out upon flesh. And that those people in that crowd were responsible, some of them directly responsible for the crucifixion of the Messiah. And they were cut to the heart. And what's amazing about that is, is that in God's grace, even the ones who were directly responsible for putting God's Son on a cross, He welcomes them back with forgiveness and mercy. The grace of God reaches out to those people and says to those people, I know what you did. I know how broken you are. I know how far you are into sin. I know that you shook your fist in the crowd and said, crucify this man and give us Barabbas. I know all of that, but I extend to you forgiveness and mercy and my grace is sufficient for the sins that you've committed. The same is true for you today. No matter how far you've gone, no matter how many wrong things you've done, no matter how, how awful those things have been, God's grace, if God's grace was sufficient for the ones who hung Jesus on the cross, trust me when I tell you, you have not gone too far. So the first characteristic or action of a New Testament church is baptizing. 
Notice this. As soon as they come to faith in Christ, they don't waste any time. They find water and they begin to baptize. And what's amazing to me is, is 3,000 people are baptized. And yes, I believe wholeheartedly they were stuck under the water. Immersed. They were not sprinkled. They were immersed. There was plenty of water sources where they were. And if they take the 120 that were in the upper room, they take the 120 and say, okay, 120, you're going to help us baptize 3,000 people. That would have been 25 people per one, one person in the upper room. Completely doable. But I want, what I want you to see is, is that as soon as these people repent, seek the forgiveness of God, experience God's grace, immediately, quickly, they are ushered towards baptism. That's why baptism is so, so important. Even at this early stage of the church, the church knew, the apostles knew, the leaders knew that the first act of obedience when you come to faith in Jesus Christ is baptism. Churches baptize. It places a person into the body of Christ. Now, salvation, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, at that moment, you are adopted, you are adopted into God's family. God becomes your father. And not only that, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you then acquire brothers and sisters in the faith all over the world, some you will never even meet. But when you are baptized, you are identifying not only with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, you are also identifying with a local body, a local church, because local churches are who's, are who's doing the baptizing. You connect with that local church. You now become part of that local body. You see, churches are called to baptize. And when churches stop baptizing, churches have stopped reaching. And when churches stop reaching, churches have begun the slow, slow march to death. And I also want to add here, the baptisms, the, the Peter preaching the gospel, the church, the 120 that were that were filled with the Holy Spirit, they are engaging with these new believers. These new believers are immediately being transitioned into the body, and the church took responsibility. 120, those indwelt with the Holy Spirit, they took personal responsibility to begin to invest in this 3,000. What, what would we do if we had 3,000 people get, come to faith in Christ this week? How would we handle that? Does that make you a little nervous? Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Well, can I just offer to you that I couldn't handle that? Can I tell you right now, there is no way that I could disciple 3,000 people? Can I offer to you that there's no way that I could personally baptize 3,000 people? We have to understand here that the apostles, the 120, were actively engaging in these people who put their faith in Jesus. So churches, New Testament churches, they baptize. That's, that's what sets us apart. We baptize and we immerse in and that is that first act of obedience. Let me just offer to you, and I've said this before, but it's worth saying again. If you put your faith in Jesus and you have not followed that up with baptism, you are living in perpetual disobedience. The first thing 
that Jesus has asked you to do after you put your faith in Him and He gives you brand new life is to follow Him in believer's baptism where you symbolize by going under the water and coming out death to yourself and resurrection to new life. If you have not done that, this is more than just church membership. This is more than having your name on a roll. This is more than just getting wet in a tank. What this is, if you don't follow in baptism, you are living in disobedience. You're starting your walk with Jesus in disobedience. And guess what happens after that? More and more and more disobedience. Church is baptized, number two. Look at verse 42. And they devoted themselves. That word devoted means constant, steadfast. That word devoted in the original Greek means an ongoing emphasis. It doesn't mean a one-time event. Ongoing. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So New Testament churches baptize, New Testament churches teach doctrine. I guarantee you that if I go back into the history of these two churches I just had on the screen, I guarantee you I will find a departure from true Christian Bible-preached doctrine. I guarantee you I'll find it. Somewhere along the line, we be, the churches begin to acquiesce to the world around them. And the first notice of that is when people begin to say, you know, Pastor, you've been talking a lot about doctrine lately. You know, doctrine is really dry. It's just, it doesn't get people excited when you talk about the, um, talk about the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ. You know, those, those things are important. I don't want don't to get you wrong on that, but, but listen, can we not talk about you know, how to live a better life? And can we not talk about how we can have better marriages? And can we not talk about how to raise our kids and, and move away from all this doctrine? When those questions begin to get raised among the leaders of a church, you are beginning to depart from what the church is meant to be. Yes, marriages are important. How to raise your kids is important, absolutely. But what I would offer to you is, is if we don't understand who Jesus is, if we don't understand who He is, what He came to do, if we don't understand the doctrines of the Christian faith, you'll never be able to understand your marriage. You'll never be able to raise your kids. Yes, it's all connected. Isn't it interesting that immediately, as soon as these 3,000 come to faith and are baptized, the first thing they begin to hear is the apostles' teaching. What were they teaching? What were these apostles teaching? They didn't have the 66 books that you have and that I have. What were they teaching? Well, they were teaching the Old Testament. They were showing how the Old Testament predicted this Messiah and that Jesus Christ is that Messiah, that Jesus Christ is, in fact, who he says that he is and says that he was and, and all that he came to accomplish was predicted by the prophets. But not only that, these apostles who walked with Jesus are teaching the people exactly what Jesus taught them. I guarantee you that these apostles are sharing with this 3,000 the parables, the parable of the soul, the, the, the parable of the lost pearl, the, the parable of the good Samaritan. I guarantee you that they are being taught these stories that Jesus taught them. I bet you that Peter and James and John are talking about the Sermon on the Mount that they heard. And the 3,000 are not only hearing the Old Testament, but they're also hearing how the Old Testament predicted this Messiah, and this Messiah is the only one who could have fulfilled what those Old Testament prophets were talking about. Doctrine. I bet these apostles and this 120 are talking about their time with Jesus when they saw him resurrected. They're teaching doctrine. And simultaneously, as the people are being taught doctrine, they're sharing it with other people. It's, it's automatically happening in the background that as they're being taught, they're telling others. You see, without doctrine, a church becomes nothing more than a social gathering. 
if, if we set God's Word aside and all we ever talk about is 10 steps to a better you, then we are ceasing to be what God has called us to be as a New Testament church. If we set aside doctrine, the teachings of Scripture, if we set aside this authority for some other authority, then we will become a social club. The tithes and offerings that you, that you give will become your dues that you pay to be part of the social club. We'll have more and more social gatherings that are inward-focused rather than outward-focused. We'll become consumers rather than missionaries. And as soon as another church comes into town with better amenities, because you're a consumer, you'll go to them. Does that make sense? Are, we, are you tracking with them? I want to make sure I'm not losing you somewhere along the journey. If we set God's Word aside, we're nothing more than a country club with some amenities. And as long as we offer good amenities, you stay plugged in. You're not a consumer. If you've been born again, you're a missionary that I have been called to equip to do the work of the ministry. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 and 12. So New Testament churches baptize. New Testament churches teach doctrine. Third, New Testament churches enjoy fellowship. Notice that. And the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. The fellowship. The, that in, that uh, emphatic there. The, uh, the fellowship. That, that word that, that's behind your English translation there is a word, Greek word that we know to be koinonia. It's a very important word. Paul uses it not a lot, but pretty frequently in, in talking about the church. And that word basically means a oneness a unity, where we are together, that we're family, that we love each other, that we look after each other. Uh, Christ followers are called to separate from the world, and, and then we unite inside the body of Christ, the church. People from all different backgrounds, all different ethnicities, all different socioeconomic backgrounds, all of that, the thing that brings us together is the cross of Jesus Christ in the empty tomb, the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us. It unites us. We have more that unites us than separates us. Satan loves to flip that around. Satan loves to point out our differences and as such tries to divide. Notice how this church was together. Verse 44, And all who believed were together, koinonia, and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all who had need. Look at that. Now, now this is not something that the church is commanded to do. We're, we're not commanded to go sell all of our stuff and, and give it to the church. And that's not what's happening here. What's happening here, as, as the apostles' doctrine was being taught, as they were spending time together, as they came out of the world and became part of the, the New Testament church, they fell in love with one another. People from all different backgrounds, people of wealth and people with nothing. They loved one another. And, with, and without the apostles having to get involved in it, they began to say, you know, so-and-so of here has got this need and, and they're impoverished. Well, I've got this resource. Why don't I sell this resource and take care of that need for you? Because you're my brother. You're my sister. We're now united together. Is that how the world sees the church? That kind of sacrificial love? I'm talking about over the whole of the Southern Baptist Convention. Is that what we're known for? Are we known for taking such good care and love of one another that the world pays attention to the fact that, you know, the world is messed up, it's broken in every account, but inside that fellowship, man, they take care of one another, they love one another. 
they're not running each other down. They're not throwing each other under the bus on Facebook. They really do have a genuine care and love for one another. Is that how we're known? They took loving their neighbor as their self seriously. And the first neighbors they began to love was the ones that were Christ followers that was in the fellowship together with them. To the point to where they were sacrificing to the point that it hurt. Look, no budget, no finance teams, no no pastoral engagement here. It was simply people who loved Jesus and loved neighbor taking care of the person sitting next to them. I would say those 4,600 churches, they're about to close their doors over the next five years. The, the 18 churches that will close their doors next week, if you look at it from the outside, you'll say, well, they ran out of money. They ran out of people. There were no people there. They, they, they just dwindled down, and it became a, a senior adult group of people, and they didn't have any resources, and it, and it just died. That, that would be one way to explain it, but can I offer to you that maybe the fellowship had died long before the church closed its doors. But instead of loving one another, they began to tear each other to shreds. If you go to my hometown, if you go to Wilkes County, and you spend any time driving around that county, you're going to find hundreds of churches. I think there's more churches up there than there are here. I'll tell you why. Most of those churches are splits off of other churches. I know churches that are third split removed. A split that went into a split that went into another split. So the fact is that we're not planting churches and starting two works. We're taking the garbage from one church and putting it into another one, and then that turns into garbage and they split off, and it just keeps going and going and going. The churches have been started out of disunity, not fellowship. You know some of those instances, don't you? Koinonia, life together, fellowship together, life together, walking together. Look, you are more than just an individual. As a Christ follower, you are more than an individual. You have been placed into a body of Christ. And we're a whole lot better together than we are apart. The early church knew that. The early church knew that there was no way they were going to be able to accomplish the mission God had put in front of them unless they did it together. You are family. We're family. Listen, person, if you're lost, here today and you don't know Christ, can I, can I offer to you that that maybe one of the reasons you've been rejecting Jesus all these many years is because you got your feelings hurt by a church years ago. I hear that a lot. That I, I got involved, my family was involved with this, and man, my family got really hurt bad by the church, and it was because the fellowship was broken, there was no unity, and you were treated horribly. Can, can I just say to you that it is not worth spending eternity in hell separated from God because your family got your feelings hurt 25 years ago. Satan is using that for you to never experience the grace and the love that I believe is inside this fellowship. This fellowship, I see this kind of love. Do we have work to do? Oh, yeah, we've got a lot of work to do. The lost person, can I tell you, I'm, I'm sorry for what happened to you 25 years ago or 10 years ago. I'm sorry that that happened to you. And, yes, our church will make mistakes too. We do. But your relationship to Christ is bigger than all that. And where you're going to spend eternity is more important than what happened to you and your family so long ago. So New Testament churches have fellowship. They teach doctrine. They baptize. New churches observe communion. Verse 42, 
He says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread. Now, there's controversy about these verses because later on down it says they were also breaking bread in homes. But here's what I think this first part is talking about. I think not only were they having meals together and having fellowship together in their homes, but as those meals would progress, someone would stand up in that home and say, okay, everybody, let's, let's calm down for just a moment. Because right now we are going to do exactly what Jesus did with the disciples in the upper room that we've been taught about, where Jesus stood up, he broke the bread, and he says, this bread represents the body which will be broken for you, and this cup represents my blood that will be shed for you. And I believe wholeheartedly that this first portion that they were devoted to was, in fact, the Last Supper, communion. Did you know that the church has been given two ordinances, baptism, which we've already talked about, and remembering Jesus' death and sacrifice through the communion event. Maybe you're new to the church, and maybe, maybe you've seen communion, and think, what in the world is all this about? Well, let me, let me explain. That, that little wafer that you take, that little piece of bread that you take, it's more than just a little snack. As a matter of fact, Paul says, in 1 Corinthians 11, that, that it is not about eating at all. If we turn it into that, we're actually sinning as a church. It's not about a snack or a meal. It's about remembering Jesus' death, His sacrifice on our behalf, and also built within it is anticipation of His return. New Testament churches observe communion. Communion is not to be something we tack on to the end of the service just so we meet the requirements of the bylaws. Don't ever let that be said about what we're doing here. We try our best to emphasize and tie this into the sermon, and we try to think about how does this fit with where we are as a church and what do we need to say. We contemplate that, both Bobby, myself, and the deacons, we think about this thing. For too many churches, it's been some kind of little thing we just throw into the end of the service because the bylaw says that we must do one once a quarter or once a month or twice a year. We've turned what is meant to be a moment of worship and reflection, we've turned it into empty, godless religion and ritual. God help us. You let any church take the communion and turn it into a dead ritual, I will show you a church that's going to go off the cliff and die. Because if we're not remembering what Jesus did for us by dying on that cross and shedding His blood, if we can't commemorate that with a bread and a cup and really understand what that means and not take it in a way that just is meaningless, if that's how we're approaching it, then we're marching slowly towards our death as a church. Churches that fail to look back at the sacrifice of Christ and what He did, if we can't remind ourselves of that on a regular basis, that church is doomed to fail. So new churches, New Testament churches, they baptize, they teach doctrine, they, they have fellowship, they observe communion, but also New Testament churches make prayer a priority. Look at this. The fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Notice that, that definite article there, the prayers. That, that indicates to me that, that these, these converts, who this 3,000 have come to faith in Christ, they were Jews. They were Jewish men and women. They've been raised in the Judaism faith and religion. And, and for them, prayer was three times a day, once in the morning, once right around 3 o'clock and once at night. So they had, they had been going through this rote process of three times a day praying. That's what they've been taught, even as small children in Judaism. And, and part of those prayers, three times a day, would have included 
quoting the Psalms and portions of Deuteronomy. That would have been the practice of their faith. But here's what I find in the New Testament church. That, that definite article, the prayers, what I think is happening here is these 3,000 who were once Jews who've now become Christ followers and accepted Jesus as Messiah, they are continuing to pray three times a day, but don't you know that it's taking on a whole new life of its own now? And the disciples, the apostles, and the 120 are teaching these 3,000 about how Jesus prayed. And how did Jesus pray? Unlike anything anybody had ever heard, Jesus said, My Father. My Father. You see, for these Jewish men and women, they're experiencing a new life and vibrancy in prayer that they've never experienced before because the Holy Spirit is now within them. It's not about what's happening at the temple proper. It's about what's happening on the inside of them. And they are now alive to this new spiritual reality that God lives in them and that they can have communion with the Creator and not have to go through a priesthood. That's a game changer. To not have to go through the priests that our high priest, Jesus Christ the righteous, is interceding on our behalf. He is our advocate. He is the one who stands between God and man. And it's only through His sacrifice and our faith in Him that bridges that gap. And now, for the first time in all of history, humanity is connected to God directly as a priesthood of believers. A priesthood. The poor and the broken and the sick and the the outcast being born again, now have access to God most holy and most high. Prayer take on a whole new priority. Think about this. These, this 120, they prayed for 10 days. Peter preached for 10 minutes. And 3,000 people respond. 10 days in prayer, 10-minute sermon, 3,000 people respond. We'll spend 10 minutes praying, 10 days preaching, and three people respond. Do you see a problem there? Yeah, I think there's a huge problem there. And God's been taking me to task on this. There's a reason why we're focusing on prayer in 2020. It's because God's taking me to the woodshed over it. And I'm going to invite you to join me. Not only in prayer, than listening to what God wants to say to us. These prayers were going up by this group of people because they knew they had no other abilities in themselves to get this task done. They themselves knew that they could not reach Jerusalem with the gospel. And that's what they've been commanded to do. They knew that they couldn't do it. They had no resources. They had no budget. They had no buildings. All the things that we put in our minds is extremely important. They had none of it. And when you have nothing, you've got nothing else to rely on but the Holy Spirit and prayer. Maybe that's the problem. Maybe we've become so comfortable with what we've got in our own skills and our own seminary training and all this stuff that we're relying on that more than we are the Holy Spirit. And if you are, and if I am, then we are marching down the long pathway to death as a church. They make prayer priority. Next, and we're almost there, so hang with me. Churches manifest, New Testament churches manifest God's power. Look at this. It says, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. All fear was upon everyone. 
we know that in the book of Acts, they were doing all kinds of miracles. I mean, people were getting their sight, the, the blind were getting their sight back, the deaf were being able to hear. We're going to read, we're going to see next week about a lame beggar who was healed. We see all these miraculous things, and I don't want to get in a debate with you whether God is doing that. I believe today, I believe that God can do miracles. I believe that God can absolutely heal. I've seen it. You're sitting here this morning. Some of you are sitting here this morning. You are a miracle walking this morning. But what we need to understand is the miracles that God is doing in the church is of a spiritual nature most of the time. And here's what I mean by that. People who were spiritually dead have been brought to life. People who were addicted to heroin are now set free. People who were walking in darkness and sin and brokenness have seen the light, confessed their sins, repented, and God has gave them brand new life. I've got marriages in this place that were on the verge of going off the cliff but have been restored. I can tell you miracle after miracle after miracle that God has done. And what all of us should do is fall in awe and fear and reverence of a holy God who is absolutely working in this fellowship. Absolutely is. Celebrate recovery every Friday is seeing miracles. Every Friday night, people who've been walking in darkness of all kinds of things are being, are finding freedom in Christ. The miracles of spiritually dead people being brought back to life. God's power in the church is the greatest outreach tool we'll ever have. When God begins to move in a fellowship and doctrine is being proclaimed, Jesus is being remembered and exalted, and lives are being changed. I want you to know that gets the attention of the community at large because all they've been experiencing for many, many years in their church life is just deadness, rote ritual. What we're actually talking about is spiritual awakening. In every spiritual awakening that occurs in any group of people, God's manifest power is there. You don't have to explain it. It's there. The New Testament churches manifest God's power. Got two more, so hang with me. New Testament churches gather for corporate worship. You thought I was going to leave that one out, didn't you? They're going to the temple. Notice this. And day by day attending the temple, verse 46. Why are they going to the temple? These are former Jews, right? Why are they going to the temple? I'll tell you, I think there's two reasons why they were going to the temple. Number one, I think the reason they're going to the temple is that's where they're going to meet people to share Jesus with. Because they're going to see people streaming into that temple who are there for ritual only and they have no relationship with their Creator. What better place than for those 3,000 to gather up in one corner of the temple and begin to sing the praises of God with joy and love. And as you saw the 3,000 people there, you would see broken people and people who are poor come together and are being loved. They were gathering together in the temple, number one, I think, to connect with other people who need to hear about Jesus. Number two, I think the reason they were gathering there is because all of the people who were there worshiping were not really worshiping at all. And I think they needed to know what true worship of a holy God looks like. So New Testament churches gather for corporate worship. Finally, New Testament churches multiply. Look at this. Praising God. They were praising God. Verse 47, and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their numbers day by day. Who, who added to their numbers? The Lord did. The Lord did. But also behind that statement is the reality that people who have been born again are telling other people who are lost about Jesus. Because what we're going to see as we move into the book of Acts, that these people 
take ownership of their faith, and they hit Jerusalem with a missionary's heart and begin to tell other people about Jesus. So there's going to be multiple times we're going to see where Luke records that God added to their number daily those who were being saved. I want to write this quote down here. Listen to this. It says, quote, Their understanding was not that they had to reach the world for Christ, but that Christ was ready to reach the world through them. When you come to the realization that it's not us having to reach the community, that Jesus died to reach the community, He desires to reach the community, He desires to do it through you, that changes your whole perspective. It's not that I have to go and tell people about Jesus. It's that I get to go tell people about Jesus. So, how? What are the what are the things that a church must be? Well, they must be baptizing. They must be reaching people. They must be teaching doctrine, and they must be together, unified, loving one another, even sacrificially. They they must be praying together. They must be making prayer a priority, and they, and they must be observing and remembering the death of Jesus Christ because that's what made it all possible. God's power must be present in this fellowship and this worship, corporate worship, where we gather together and worship God together. And then we continue to reach and multiply not only disciples, but also churches. So what happened in those two churches we talked about at the very beginning? If you could go back and you could take a look and you could talk to the leaders, I promise you, you're going to miss one or maybe all those things in that fellowship. And here's the scary part, folks. In the early 80s, they thought everything was okay. They thought everything was okay. You see, it was, a, it was a slow fade. It took years and years and years. And then all of a sudden, it collapsed. So as a New Testament church who takes God's Word seriously, here's what I'm asking for the next 40 days. 40 days of prayer starts on Wednesday. Here's what I'm asking you to do through those devotionals and through what we're going to be doing through those 40 days of prayer and that 10 days of fasting that, that you may make a commitment to, here's what I'm asking you to do, is ask, how can I be, as a part of the body of Christ, this fellowship, how can I be about these eight things? And God, what do you want to do? Where do you want to take me in these eight things? Can I be in better fellowship with that brother or sister? Can I bring Jesus up? Can I go deeper in my prayer? Can I... Can I, first time in my life, really understand Jesus' sacrifice? Maybe that's through communion. What is God saying to you specifically about these eight things that we as a body of Christ must be about if everything else goes away? Father in heaven, I thank you for this model of a church that we have in front of us because it helps us to clarify what we're to be about. Because, Father, we can make it about a lot of things. But, Father, what it must be about, first and foremost, is the gospel, the good news. And, Father, first and foremost, this morning, if there's one here that has never put their faith in you, right now, today is the day, this moment, now. Because we're not guaranteed another day. Father, the thing that they're seeking, that they can't find in the world, is found in the good news of the gospel fellowship with their creator through Jesus Christ, the righteous. True life, true meaning, purpose, love, acceptance, grace, forgiveness, shame being removed. All of that is found in the gospel. That's why it's good news. 
Father, for those in the room who've already put their faith in you and have been following you maybe for some time, Father, I would imagine that in these eight things that we've discussed, there, there may be some deficiency in our prayer life, in our fellowship, in our understanding of the doctrines of the faith, our departure from the Word, that we only pick it up on Sunday mornings. Father, I don't know what the needs are of these people, but you do. Put your hand on it today as we walk together through this time and this season of prayer. We ask all this in Christ's name. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram, at Hyde Park Baptist. 